I'm not preaching in 2 Corinthians this morning. Uh, and the reason is because uh, the Lord kind of laid a, a verse on my heart that I'm going to, uh, to share with you. We read there out of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And I would just like to share a few of those verses again with you as we begin. Paul here writing to this uh, Gentile church in the city of Rome, the seat of the enemy in those days, as it were. But Paul emphasizes, let love be genuine. You know, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we're to love our neighbors ourselves. And it's very interesting that the way the scriptures relate these two, that our love for the brethren is an indication of our love for God. And we can't love God without loving our brethren. (laughs) Let love be genuine. We claim to love the Lord, but we have problems with our brothers. Uh, there, that's that would indicate that we really don't have a genuine love for the Lord. If we have a genuine love for the Lord, we will love uh, those whom who whom the Lord also loves, <laughs> our brethren, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So then Paul says, "Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good." Also, where Paul says that we are to separate ourselves from the world. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Cling and cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ and reject the ways of the world. So then he he states, love one another with a brotherly affection. In other words, look out for each other. Know where they are. Pray for their circumstances and situation. And be ready to step in and help them when they need help. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's one of the great problems of our world today is our arrogance. And our self-importance. We think everybody should be bowing down to us. Serve, he says, serve the Lord. That's how we do it. Now, the, now the, the verse that, that the Lord confronted me with was uh, out of this passage is this next verse. And there are three things here in this, in this verse that, again, tie together and relate. They flow from each other. As I'm serving the Lord, uh, it's not going to be easy. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, prosperity gospel preachers have missed the mark. (laughs) They haven't read the scriptures. They don't understand. They haven't read about what what happened with the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles as they sought to serve the Lord. And the opposition, Ron preached about it last week there from uh, Acts chapter 4 about Peter and those who, who preached the hope of Israel to people who said, no, we don't want this. This man is not the Messiah that we're anticipating. So stop preaching in his name. We don't want to hear any more about it. 
and how they suffered. And yet, when when they had their prayer meeting, they went home rejoicing that that the Lord had put them in that situation. So so then here's the three: rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer, or I believe the King James Version has it instant in prayer. The Greek word there is an interesting word. I'll touch upon that here in a minute. And then he goes on to, to talk about how we uh, express this among our, each other, contributing to the needs of the saints, showing hospitality, blessing those that persecute us, and so forth. So, but the, the the passage that really struck me and got me to thinking here were these, where Paul states that we should rejoice in hope, be patient. The word patient there is the Greek word that's often translated endure, endure hardship. It's a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Same word. Endure in tribulation, and then constant. And the word constant here means to give unrelenting or unremitting, excuse me, unremitting care to something. In other words, you zero in on it, you focus on it, you and you give it a, your unremitting attention and care in prayer. We need to, as Paul says, Rejoice always and be instant or constant in prayer. You never want to, we want to be praying all the time. And that this would be a great three point sermon in itself. And as I meditated on it and thought about it, I thought, you know, this is really the code here for, for believers as they seek to survive in the days in which we live. We're living in some, some period of some awful times. We wonder where everything is going. And the Lord doesn't tell us. <laughs> he doesn't, I mean, I don't have a road map. Well, I do in a sense, but not. But I don't know the details. So what does the Lord tell me to do in this time? says uh, rejoice in hope rejoice in what not my not necessarily my present circumstances there might not be much to rejoice there about i can rejoice in the lord but i and i can rejoice in my hope but not maybe in my present circumstances and then tied to that very clearly tied to that is endure the tribulation the, the thalipsis, the word tribulation there is the Greek word thalipsis, which it means pressure. Paul says uh, in, there in Second uh, Corinthians uh, that God's put this treasure in jars of clay in order that the power may be of God, not of us. And then he talks about how he was under pressure, but not crushed. That's the same thing, pressure. The the thalipsis, the pressure in a tight spot, but not crushed by it. And 
then the constant attention to prayer here, I think, is is how we're is how we're to live it. We constantly look to the Lord, constantly seeking God's face. Now, let me get back to this matter of the hope. We are to rejoice in hope, and let me define. I want to define hope here for you. Hope is the faith that rests in promises not yet realized. I have faith in the salvation of Jesus Christ because it has already been evident. And I can experience the new birth. And I can walk by faith in His salvation. But what becomes of me in the future, what the promises lay for me in the future are not yet realized by me. And so I don't live by faith in them. I live by hope in them. So hope here has to do with... uh, the glorious day which will be free from all trial that awaits us in the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom of God the Father. And now in this present hour, we're to walk by faith. As we read there in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Walk by, we walk by faith and not by sight. Knowing, as Paul says there, we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. You know, when we suffer, as you get older, and you begin, your joints begin to hurt a little bit, and your knees don't work like they used to, and and uh, you uh, and a number of other things begin to come. You begin to say, "Boy, I'd sure wish I could get my youth back again." <laughs> now, rather, what we should really want is to have that resurrection body, that renewed body, which then gets our, it will get our youth back again, and we will be ever forever free from these circumstances. But why does God put us in them? To encourage our hope. To encourage that hope. We, so that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There in Second Corinthians chapter five verse eight. But in the meantime, as Paul says there in verse number nine, we make it our aim to please him. Not fuss and complain about our circumstances, but serve him, serving the Lord and making it our aim to please him. And how do we do this? Well, Paul sought to encourage the churches established on his first missionary journey there in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, when he said to them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul stated it this way. We have an inheritance, or excuse me, Peter, (laughs) Peter stated it this way. We have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for us. Who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, a deliverance. You know, we think, we think salvation kind of, okay, I accepted Jesus or, and, 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 and now I'm saved and I've got salvation. 
So what does Paul, Peter mean when he says salvation ready to be revealed? Salvation simply is the word deliverance. We're in this tribulation time. Some, some are saying, are we in the tribulation? I keep, I keep I scratching my head and I say, haven't you looked around? It's not, our, you know, we are in it, yes, and we've been in it. <laughs> We want to be delivered from it. So we, we walk by faith, serve the Lord, but and knowing that we, by the power of God, are guarded through, through this walk of faith. Knowing that this salvation, this deliverance from this time will be revealed in the last time. At the end, see, here's here's our thing. We're looking at a time, a time thing here. So then he says, "In this you rejoice." What do we rejoice in? The the hope. See, rejoice in hope. And what is the hope? The hope is that uh, by the power of God, we're being guarded and kept in this walk of faith in this tribulation hour, so that. Uh, we will be with the hope that the coming salvation to be revealed in the last time is going to spare us from this. So in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, he says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. And there's the key. This is the thing. One of these days, everything that we are doing now will be tested, and it will be tested by fire. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. The fire shall prove every man's work of what sort it is. And whether it's gold or silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. Sadly, many who claim to be believers are building with these materials that will not endure the flames. No. More precious, he says, than gold, than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, when in this future day of the Lord, so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the Apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the second coming. Now, here, here's the, the issue I think that we need to look at here and uh, raises the question, what does, did, did he mean by we must, there from Acts chapter 14, verse 22, to continue in the faith saying that we through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean by we must enter? We must enter the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom future? Are we waiting to go into the kingdom? Or, and I would say yes, that is future. Yes, it is. Or is the kingdom now? And I'd say yes. I would say, wait a minute. Can it can't be both. Yes, it can. 
Yes, it can. And Paul answers that question for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's the, here's the, the simple answer is there are two aspects of the kingdom of God. One is a present aspect. One is a future aspect. They are both the same kingdom, but they have different manifestations to us at this time. The present manifestation of the kingdom is being established in this tribulation. This current world situation. The other is when that kingdom, the kingdom that's being established now, is going to overrun everything else and will become the kingdom of God on earth. Then there will be no, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying, no more politics, <laughs> no more uh, wars and rumors of wars, no more fighting among the nations or in, among the peoples in a nation. Be done. Because what is Jesus doing now, according to Paul? Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he's putting all of his enemies under his feet, according to verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15. And there Paul cites from Psalm 110, verse 1, a psalm which, by the way, is cited in many other places in the New Testament. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be put under his feet is death. And when he has conquered that, and he'll conquer that one at the resurrection, when all that are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. At that period he will be gathering the people for uh, he will he will gather the people that he is now gathering. See, right now he's gathering a people for his name from every corner of earth. But then according to Revelation 5, 9, these people will rejoice in him, a people from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. And there we will be living under the rule of the Son. But that's what we're going to do. That's what we're supposed to be doing now. He's gathering a people. We are here. We've been gathered. That's what a church is. A church is a, an assembly, a gathering, a congregation, a fellowship of believers that have been gathered out of their homes and, and, and uh, places and brought into, into this meeting, which is the kingdom of God. Under the rule of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? He's reigning right now. He's reigning in you. And He's reigning in me. If we truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the dead are raised, Jesus will return. And when he does, he's going to turn the kingdom over to the Father. Then it becomes the kingdom of the Father. But Jesus will still be ruling. <laughs> and we know this from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, and notice, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's not limited to one people. 
the Jews. It's all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. The his his kingdom right now is not an everlasting kingdom in this in this sense that it is limited to a period of time when he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. When that is accomplished, then it becomes the eternal kingdom. See, there's the, that's the difference. Right now, it's not an eternal kingdom. And I'm glad it's not. Because I look around me and there's an awful lot of stuff I don't like. But that's still part of his job now is to bring all of that stuff under his feet too. Yes. So, we are to live as kingdom citizens. We're no longer... You know, I, I think about, well, I, I love America. It's been, I think, the greatest nation ever upon the face of the earth. And I'm very grateful to God for ha for allowing me to be born in this country. And boy, I, I grew up here and I've got many, many fond memories. But you know something? When I became a believer in Jesus Christ, I lost my citizenship to this world. I'm now a citizen of the kingdom. In this world, I'm an alien and a stranger. Paul referred to it there in 2 Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? He's a stranger from another country that's living in, an, in a foreign land representing the country that he came from. That's what we are. I'm, gr I'm grateful to be an ambassador in the United States. I like this place. But I don't, I'm not here, I'm not, this is not my home. I'm just passing through. And one of these days, I'm going to be in the eternal kingdom. With my true king and true government. So in the meantime, here I'm going to have to do a little suffering. We endure tribulation knowing that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And because of this truth, we are, we are to give constant, unremitting care to praying. Pray without ceasing. Paul said, put on your armor, stand firm, and pray. <laughs> pray. So, this brings me to my first point. And this is something I think we need to understand. If we're to, to rejoice in hope and endure the tribulation, we need to understand something. And that is, what is going on? What is God doing? What is the present state of the kingdom? So Jesus' teaching on this matter uh, often in the Gospels, and we don't really see it because we don't have this background to, to, to understand it, but Jesus often is correcting the Jews on their mistaken concepts of the kingdom of God. Their mistaken concept of the kingdom of God is why he was rejected and crucified. 
But it was in the plan of God. But that was in the plan of God. Malachi. Uh, you see, they, you see what they were expecting. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Which their erroneous expectation was that God would restore the Davidic kingdom to Israel, and that the nation of Israel would be the prominent nation in the world. To understand the true nature of the kingdom of God, then when and when you do that, it will correct this error of the Jews. But you have to understand that there are two days of the Lord. A long time ago, I began to see that in the scriptures, and I and uh, I struggled with it a while. But then, the more I the more I studied, the more I saw, the more I realized there are two days of the Lord. The day of the Lord is judgment. The day of the Lord is a testing by fire. The day of the Lord is when God ends something with a judgment. So they, there are two of these. One for the, for the old covenant period. And this is what happened when Jesus came the first time. His first coming was in a, in a, in one sense, the second coming for the old covenant kingdom. Because when Jesus comes back again, it's a day of judgment. When he came the first time, it's a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment upon Israel, rebellious Israel. And you see what they did to, to the Messiah. And it's interesting here how Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, very short chapter, it closes with a promise of a glorious day in which the sun, not the S-O-N, the S-U-N, the sun of righteousness would rise with healing in its wings. Aren't we looking forward to that day? Yeah, but it's interesting that, that this day that's going to dawn is also a day of fire and judgment because there are two peoples that are involved here, those who fear God, the righteous, and those who reject God, the wicked. So verse 5 there of, of Malachi 4 identifies this day as a great and awesome day of the Lord. Awesome. The word awesome there in the Hebrew language really means to be greatly feared. A terrible day. So which is it? A glorious day? A new day in which the righteous will go out leaping like calves from the stall? I, I I love that picture. Wow. Leaping like calves from the stall. But then in verse 2 it's described as a dreadful day that shall set them ablaze. <laughs> okay, which is it? Actually, 
that day will will reveal the distinction between the righteous and the wicked and between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That's according to chapter 3, verse 18 of Malachi. God's going to make a distinction. That's the same thing is going to happen on the second day of the Lord when Jesus comes back again. You can read Matthew 25 on that, where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And note what Jesus says was the indicator that divides them. As you treated the, the one of the least of these, you treated me. Hmm. Interesting. So the day of the Lord then will prove to be disastrous to the wicked. So in verse chapter 4, verse 1, it says, All the arrogant and all the evildoers shall, will be stubble, leaving them neither root nor branch. Reminds me of John the Baptist when he came said, The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Judgment has come. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. On the other hand, that day for the righteous will be glorious. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So these two days are, one, for judgment on the old covenant age, and two, for judgment on the new covenant age. We're, we also are facing a day of the Lord. And Jesus announced the first when he declared that John the Baptist had fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi. There in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. Remember, the day of the Lord is to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And Malachi closes by announcing that the first day of the Lord would be announced by the prophet Elijah. In verse 5. Now, so Jesus explains this in uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, I'll, just, I'll be very brief here with the description, but here is where he deals with the imprisoned John the Baptist. He's been in prison for a little while, not, not too long because this is not too far into Jesus' public ministry, but early in Jesus' public ministry, he was arrested. And he was arrested because he denounced the marriage of Herod to Herodias, who had been Philip's wife. He had taken the wife of Philip and made her his own wife. And God said, that's wrong. So, he got put in jail. Now he's sitting in jail. And uh, so as he's sitting in jail, he's beginning to question, is this Jesus really the Messiah? Now, why would he do that? See, here's the question. Why would John be questioning the Messiah? Because he is in tribulation. He's suffering now. He does not, he's not able to rejoice in hope. And the reason is because he has a mistaken 
concept of the kingdom. He believes, like all the Jews of his day, in fact, that all the disciples, remember, when Jesus was raised from the dead just before he ascend, ascended, they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? That was their expectation. And John the Baptist said, didn't it, it look like the plan's working out? Jesus is not overthrowing Herod. He's not driving the Jews, the, uh, the, uh, the Romans out and establishing the throne of David. So he sent disciples to, to John, are you, the, are you truly the Messiah or shall we look for another? Well, you know what Jesus answered to him? John, have you not read the scriptures? <laughs> he said, hey, what do you guys see? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And he's alluding to a number of passages from the book of Isaiah. The word of God already told you. Look and see. They were satisfied and they went home to tell John. So after that, he turns to the crowd that was with him. It's interesting. It doesn't mention anything about his disciples. And the reason I believe so is because this is a period that they're gone because he sent them out <laughs> to preach the gospel in the villages. And what was the gospel they were to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> so, after John's disciples went back to John, he turns around and he looks at the people that are that are, were with him and he and makes an interesting pronouncement. He says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then he turns around and he makes another very interesting statement. But the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he, the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, wait a minute. Some doesn't, some, is John the greatest or not? And what about this least in the kingdom being greater than John? What does that mean? See that? That's an important truth. And I think what we have here is Jesus is now giving some very important truth couched in somewhat obscure language. And we know that because he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When Jesus says that is, uh, what I'm going to say here, you're going to have to have the Spirit of God interpret to you, this is obscure language. And the first thing Jesus said was that the true kingdom of God would suffer violence. This is, a, this is one of those verses in Matthew 11, verse 12. It says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. 
What did he mean by that? I've read several sermons in the past over that, never was satisfied with it. Some of them were some good sermons, but I never was satisfied with their interpretation. And I may be wrong, but but I think I have it here. Listen. Listen to what he said. From the days of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist began his ministry, until now, and we're not talking about a very very long period of, of time. Christ is in the first year of his public ministry. So we're looking at a year maybe? said, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. What kind of violence did it suffer? The rejection of Jesus. He goes on in that 11th chapter to say, Woe unto you, Chorazon, Bethsaida. For if the truth, if the, the facts that had been preached to you uh, or had been preached uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah had been preached to you. So I, or, yeah, if the things that you have seen and heard, I'll get, get that right here. The things you have seen and heard should be preached to you were preached to Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented in dust cloth and sackcloth and ashes. Think about that. Here are these towns in Galilee that Jesus ministered in and performed miracles in. And they heard the word of God, but they rejected Jesus. He said, if Sodom and Gomorrah, as wicked as they were, had heard this, and and this, this that I've given to you, they would have repented. Ah, but why didn't they repent? Because they had a, the expectation that their Messiah would come in and throw the bums out and set them up in positions of honor and dress them in royal garments and they'd be strutting around with pride. Woo! Look at us! Yeah. But he didn't. He told them, you're sinners. You need to repent. You need to humble yourselves before God in in sackcloth and ashes. And you need, to, and then he, that's why, why I believe it's so important that he tells them, the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than you, than John the Baptist. The kingdom of God is for humble people, for the humble, the contrite in spirit. See, the old covenant aspect of the kingdom would suffer violence. When those who heard it rejected Jesus and removed him in an attempt then to take the kingdom of force, and that's exactly what happened. After they crucified Jesus, they began to rebel against the Romans with the zealots. And then the Romans retaliated and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. 70 AD. Yet although no one born of woman was greater than John, see, this is, this is the question now that arises. So, Jesus here is not making a moral distinction between John the Baptist and his followers 
but noting that the fact that what was considered great in the old covenant aspect of the kingdom. And you just go back and read Solomon in all his glory, David in all his glory. Ah. Great. You know, the, even the temple itself, the disciples used to go out and, whoa, look at this building. Jesus, do you think this is something? Just wait, because not one stone's going to be left on another. What we think is so wonderful and so great. No, God doesn't think that at all. So then he, so that's why Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's not looking for important people. Or self-important people. He's looking for the meek, the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will lift you up. See, this is the new standard for the kingdom. We read there in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my, my beloved brothers, God has not chosen, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. Thus Jesus argued, that Elijah had come. Who was Elijah? John the Baptist. Which then announced that the day of the Lord, the judgment day that had come upon the old covenant, had was there, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubbled. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Malachi 4.1 but the new covenant day was now dawning for you who fear my name. The son of righteousness is arising with healing in its wings. See, the new era, the new covenant era is arising out of the ashes of the first day of the Lord. That's important to understand. That means Jesus then declares that the present status of the kingdom and he, we find this in Luke 16. And the Pharisees, let me read this one to you. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things. I mean, just think about in, the, in his day, the Pharisees strutting around in all their fancy clothes and their love of money. When they heard these things, they ridiculed him. <laughs> and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Notice that the law and the prophets were until John. That's the old covenant kingdom. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. That's the new covenant kingdom. And everyone forces his way into it. That is, they tried to. <laughs> they tried to force their way into it. But Jesus wouldn't cooperate. It, it, it began back there when old 
when uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, we know that you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you can do except God be with him. We. Notice, he didn't say I, he said we. But Jesus warned him, if, you, if you're not born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. He thought, we're going to get Jesus' cooperation on our quest for the kingdom. No, Jesus said, uh, you don't even know about the kingdom. And until you're born again, and what, what happens when you're born again? <laughs> All of this self-importance goes out the window. The good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But, Jesus said, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, they, they would reject Jesus, but it would not cause the word of God to fail. The word of God would not fail. Note here that Jesus' reference to a new day, John's appearance in that day, which is the good news of the kingdom being preached, would be preached indeed. And John introduced this kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. And again we read, from that time, and after the tribulation, that which is after the temptation, and, and, excuse me, let me back up. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we read, and from that time. And the time reference there is that it's after the temptation when Satan had offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory. Jesus said no. So from that time, Jesus began then to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The new the new kingdom of God, this present kingdom that will terminate in the glory of the eternal kingdom after the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what's the present? Let me just close quickly with the present duty of believers in this kingdom. And this is what I hinted at here in the, in the uh, opening verse there. Romans 12.12 12. Rejoice in hope. Endure tribulation. Be vigilant in your prayer life. See, we're living, we are living in the manifestation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the Son. He's ruling right now. Therefore, we read in Hebrews, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and godly fear. For what? Our God is a consuming fire. You know what Paul is telling us in that passage? He says, We've, we have received this kingdom. Now let's live like kingdom citizens ought to live, because one of these days... Everything we have done in this, in this kingdom life will be tested by the fire. Our God is a consuming fire. See, and while we're living here, we are yearning for the future manifestation of the eternal kingdom. 
So we read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put on, to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found to be naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, but that we would rather be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up of life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, that is a token, a promise, or a down payment. Second Corinthians 5, 1-5. So secondly, then, we are to recognize that the kingdom must take first place in our lives. My kingdom living has to come first. So we read in Matthew six thirty three, which I believe is given to us to prepare us for kingdom living. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're more concerned about food and clothes and housing and, and uh, vacations and ball games and everything else. God says, uh-uh. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So it's our duty then also to invite all that are around us to leave the kingdom of darkness and enter the kingdom of light and to prepare for the coming of the day of the Lord. So Paul tells Timothy in first, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. You say, well, Timothy was a preacher. No, that's for all of us. Thirdly, uh, uh, excuse me, we also then recognize that one day we will give an account on the day of, on the uh, to the judge on the day of the Lord to come. So and again, Second Corinthians chapter five verses nine and ten, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is do for what he has done in the body during this kingdom age of the sun, whether it be good or worthless. Thirdly, realize that we are obligated in the here and now to confront to conform to kingdom principles. That's and again, first Corinthians chapter fifteen verse fifty. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The future kingdom would come. It's not a kingdom of flesh and blood. That's why we need a resurrection before we can enter it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 10 and 11, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then how do we live in the now and not, and not yet kingdom age? We are to rejoice in hope. We are to anticipate the glorious day to experience when Jesus comes and live in light of that. We are then to endure tribulation because the world hates our king and it will hate us as well. And thus we need to be in constant, the unremitting care of prayer, focusing on the needs and concerns of those around us, seeking God's will for them and for ourselves in this time. So I close here with Revelation 1, 5 and 6. To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Father, thank you for this truth that we've set forth today. I pray God burn it into our hearts. We're living as ambassadors of the kingdom of God in this world. And when we come together as a church, we are the temple of God because God is among us. And we are the kingdom of God because we are assembled in our true political realm. Lord, I pray that you would let our love be genuine that you would enable us to abhor the evil and cleave fast to the good, that you would enable us to show brotherly affection one to another, to outdo one another in showing honor to each other, to be zealous and not slothful, to be fervent in our spirit and to serve the Lord. Rejoice in the hope set before us patient in the trials we endure, constant in the prayers we raise to you. And we'll praise you and thank you for what you'll do in us, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.